in the current climate, the current intellectual, uh, the current moral climate, law carries an enormous amount of weight. And it's a very powerful weapon if you know how to use it. The Palestinian leadership doesn't know how to use it. Sovereigns, a podcast based at the University of Cambridge, where we ask ourselves, should we reimagine the state? My name is Tanita. I am Christina. And I am Aditi. And we will be your hosts for this season of the podcast. Welcome to the Sovereigns. With us is Norman Finkelstein, a renowned scholar and political activist. His most recent book, Gaza, an inquest to its martyrdom, was released earlier this year. And now in this episode, we will explore more about his new book and discuss about the power of various external factors in the making or unmaking of a sovereign state. Stay tuned for our next episode to hear a response interview with Professor David Feldman. Now to walk you through his new book, Norman Finkelstein essentially analyzes the long-standing problem in the Palestinians' resistance. It explains the power and problem of language that we use to illustrate and label the players, especially when the language is charged with legal power. The law, then, could and had been the tool to disempower the oppressed. And the truth, he believes, is indisputably on the side of the Palestinians and their struggle. In Israel and Palestine, people live and see life in two very different realities. While the Israelis commemorate their Independence Day, the Palestinians take a minute of silence to remember the Nagba, the day of catastrophe when thousands of Palestinians were displaced following the Israelis' declaration of independence in 1948. Throughout the first half of this year alone, a lot has happened between them. Protests and demonstrations in Gaza and the West Bank, calling for the return of Palestinian refugees which turned into escalating conflicts, the opening of the US Embassy in Jerusalem in May, and the ongoing air raids in Gaza. All along, dozens of civilians were killed. Old and young are no exceptions. While the other would call them terrorists, for them, they are civilians who resist and just have to resist. So in the earlier part of your book, you portray this um, competing narratives mm-hmm. between who claims who as an aggressor. Mm-hmm. So from the Israeli side of the house, um, of course, they, you know, the um, Gaza occupation and also East Jerusalem in 1967, the series of military um, operations towards them and also the accusation towards Hamas. 
are based on security reasons, military exigencies, and the notion of self-defense. While you challenge this by bringing up that there is virtually no security threats uh, whatsoever, and it's this Gaza is just this unfortunate strip that is being used for Israel's, Israel's um, regional gain. Um, our question would be, um, how would you how would you respond to that competing narrative? As in, um, why is it important for us to um, establish who is the aggressor between them? Well, I want to make a preliminary point, if you'll allow me. Um, I don't like the new language of competing narratives. Mm-hmm. I find it revolting, frankly, mm-hmm. because it uh, assumes that there are two, uh, two vantage points of equal validity and um, that you have to somehow negotiate between two competing views. Uh, I'm old-fashioned. There's, uh, you might say there are competing claims as to the facts, but then you weigh one set of facts, alleged facts, against another set of alleged facts, and you try to determine which are true and which are false, and then you approach, uh, through such a determination, you approach truth. Um, I don't like the language of competing narratives, and it's an extremely... Uh, It's a a convenient language for some people. I've never heard anyone talk about competing uh, narratives in the Nazi Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of a Nazi narrative as if it carried any legitimacy whatsoever? Uh, People use the notion of competing narratives when they know that their facts are false. Mm -hmm. And then they pretend there are two competing narratives or three competing narratives. Uh, it's a it's a language of um, of um, it's a it's an ideological tactic okay. to evade the fact that the facts speak against you. There are no competing narratives on Gaza, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Now you may disagree with me. Fine, then put forth your facts, measure them against mine, and let's see who's telling the truth and who's not telling the truth. Mm-hmm. But don't tell me you have one narrative of Gaza, which is of equal validity and equal legitimacy to my own. I'm not going to accept that. Mm. And that's the whole point of the book, to show that uh, the facts are actually quite uncontroversial. Mm. Most of the facts towards the second half come from the Israelis, you know. And then you you have to make sense of them. They say that 5,000 rockets were fired into Israel and one house was destroyed. Well, that doesn't really make much sense. How could 5,000 rockets destroy only one house? The only possible interpretation is they're not rockets. If you fired 5,000 rockets into Cambridge, do you think only one building would be destroyed? No, Gaza's not much bigger than Cambridge. So you're going to tell me there are two competing narratives. One says they're rockets, one says they're fireworks. No. No, I don't accept that. If there were rockets, they were fired into Cambridge. I think more than one building would be destroyed. They're not rockets. So, uh, my point of departure is I don't accept the um, language of competing narratives. Now, uh, if you can repeat the question. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, between these claims, why is it important for us yeah. uh, to establish an aggressor? 
because that's the law. The law has two components. It's called, you know, the fancy international uh, uh, terms, uh, the justice of war and the justice in war. Justice of war is who is the aggressor. Justice in war is where the laws of where the law uh, of armed conflict where they respected. So a fundamental principle of international law is uh, who is responsible for the outbreak of hostilities. That's a serious issue because hostilities mean death. Now, if you elected to use armed force in order to resolve a conflict, that carries a very heavy moral burden because you are now... Uh, resorting to a, uh, a a means or method that's going to cause you know tremendous human suffering and death. So of course it's important who initiated a conflict in which death and destruction inevitably and inexorably uh, ensues. So that is a very important issue. And that's why the United Nations, uh, its charter, is very careful. You have no right to initiate armed conflict except in, uh, you know, Article 51, except in self-defense and uh, very strict terms. It has to be an imminent armed attack, you know. So these are, you could say at one level it's a question of this is the law, but we shouldn't forget the fact that right behind the law is a burning moral question. It's talking about life and death. I mean, if you are if you are on the receiving end of an armed conflict, it wouldn't even occur to you to ask, why is it important who started? <laughs> I mean, it's war. So, who started? Who caused the death, the destruction, the raining of bombs on people, the dropping of white phosphorus on people? Uh, that's a very serious question. Going ahead with that, I mean, it's it's absolutely settled that the people in Gaza are suffering, mm-hmm. and these questions of who the aggressor is and mm-hmm. who who know you know who is at the receiving end seem very uh, theoretical when you actually look at. Uh, the real situation there. Uh, now we'll talk a little about the role that, you know, these international organizations and human rights bodies, especially the UNHRC, uh, played in this part. So uh, a part of your book talks about the fact-finding mission under Richard Goldstone. You've analyzed the Goldstone report and, you know, the consequent, uh, you know, recantment of the findings of the report by Mr. Richard Goldstone. Uh, you call uh, the report firstly as a searing indictment of the Israeli occupation. Uh, what, in your opinion, is the value of a report like this uh, or a fact-finding document like this in terms of the conflict? And assuming that such a recantment had not taken place, uh, what do you think would be the position in sort of bringing about some accountability of Israel's conduct in the eyes of international community? Well... The report was important, and here I'm going to have to interject uh, some technical points. Uh, under international law, there are three categories of crimes which constitute war crimes. 
One is called disproportionate force, the second is called indiscriminate force, and the third is the targeting of civilians, that is to say, not respecting the principle of distinction. A disproportionate attack means essentially you're targeting a civilian, excuse me, you're targeting a combatant. Let's say somebody's targeting you, you're a Hamas militant, and they decide to take you out, to use the disgusting language of, of armed conflict, in order to take you out, they drop a one-ton bomb at you, right? And, but in the course of trying to take you out, they kill 20 civilians. So it's called disproportionate because in order to take out one militant, you end up killing 20 civilians. That's disproportionate. Now, I don't want to go into the technicalities, but the whole term is completely worthless. You can never prove disproportionality. Uh, it's perfectly obvious that it's just a, I don't know, it's, it's a term that stronger parties use against weaker parties. It has no content whatsoever. The second category is called indiscriminate force. So let's say you're at Hamas militant again, somebody comes into the room, they want to target you, but they just fire indiscriminately into the room and they end up killing you, you and me in order to get you. And they didn't target you precisely, they didn't use, as it were, a precision weapon. Those two categories, they presume there is a military target, namely you are the Hamas militant. The third category is different the category of uh, purposely targeting civilians. Because then there's no military target. You are targeting civilians. Why did I go through this little technical disquisition? Because when always when it comes to Israel, the human rights organizations are willing to say it used disproportionate force. They're willing to say it used indiscriminate force, but they dread saying it targeted civilians. Why did they do that? Why did they dread it? Because under international law, the three categories, they carry equal weight. They're all war crimes. There's no hierarchy. It's not like this is worse than this, and this is worse than this. They are equivalent. But in the court of public opinion, they're not equivalent. Public opinion and things, well, disproportionate force, how do you measure it, you know, Maybe this militant was a high-ranking militant, and therefore it might justify killing 10 civilians. Public opinion thinks indiscriminate force, well, uh, there's the fog of war, or you may not have at that particular moment a more precise weapon at your disposal. Don't worry, don't worry. Just give me any blank piece of paper, any blank, and we'll just soak it up. Or... or uh, you may uh, not have a more discriminate weapon at that particular moment at your disposal. So public opinion will also give a pass to indiscriminate force. But public opinion will not give a pass to targeting civilians. That's a kind of red line in a public opinion. And I'll give you an example from yesterday's news. So Amnesty International issued yesterday a very harsh statement condemning Syria. And if you read the statement, and if you don't have it at your disposal, I can send it to you. They say Assad, excuse me, Bashir, is targeting civilians. He's targeting civilians. He's targeting his own people. 
And it's perfectly obvious. They know that in the court of public opinion, this is a much more incendiary charge. They didn't say that Bashar was using indiscriminate force. They didn't say using disproportionate force. They said targeting civilians. It's the one thing that the human rights organizations, they're afraid. They're not going to say about Israel. Along comes the Goldstone Report. And the Goldstone Report was kind of unusual in that way. First of all, we have to remember that Goldstone had several immunities. He was a very respected international jurist. He was a Jewish, not just by fortune, but by self-identification. And so Israel didn't have its, its um, usual tactics, its slurs, its slur machine, uh, anti-Israel, anti-Semitic. It didn't really stick with Richard Goldstone. It wasn't really very credible. Self-hating Jew, no, not Richard Goldstone, doesn't really uh, ring true. And so Goldstone had a certain amount, as I said, of immunity. And behind that immunity, he said something very unusual. He said, the attack in Gaza, in this case, Operation Cast Lead, he said, it was designed to punish, humiliate, and terrorize a civilian population. In other words, it had nothing to do with the war. It wasn't um, targeting a military objective, as in a munitions site or a tank. It wasn't a t targeting combatants. He kind of dispelled the fog surrounding the conflict, lifted the curtain of ideological obfuscation. He said, it's not a war. It's the targeting of the civilian population, which is something very different. And as I document in the book, he had crossed the red line and Israel went berserk. Every level of society across the entire political spectrum, with the usual you know, honorable exceptions, including Gideon Levy, who will be here tonight, um, they started to, uh, it was like a no holds barred assault on Goldstone, uh, dredging up his past when he was a judge under the um, apartheid regime in South Africa. He's South African. Um, then going for the moral jugular, uh, telling him he couldn't attend his grandson's bar mitzvah in South Africa. Uh, so he came under tremendous attack. And the reason he came under the tremendous attack is because he said what nobody else had the nerve to say, that these operations have nothing whatever to do with military targets. They're not disproportionate attacks, and they're not... Um, indiscriminate attacks. In fact, they were very discriminate. That's no joke. They were very discriminate attacks on the civilian population. They would go into neighborhoods and just rope off neighborhoods, send in the D9 bombers, and just flatten entire neighborhoods. That's not indiscriminate, you know? So he... Um, he, he did what nobody else dared to do. I want to make an, a point. The human rights organizations, until very recently, were actually factually very accurate. 
they are the people on the ground, the um, field workers. They have high standards, in my opinion, of professional integrity. And so the factual side of the reports, the factual side, it tends to be very accurate. I would say the last report from Amnesty, I can't say that anymore, but in general, they tend to be very accurate. The problem comes when the legal interpretation sets in. So you get a set of facts. This happened, that happened, that happened, that happened, that happened, and then the lawyers step in, and the lawyers have to interpret the facts. Given this fact set, would you say it was a violation of international law? Was it a war crime? Was it a crime against humanity? If it was a war crime, was it a disproportionate attack? Was it an indiscriminate attack? Was it the targeting of civilians? That's the job of the lawyers. And with all due respect to the three of you, who I assume are law students here, uh, when the lawyers come in, the truth goes out. Uh, and then they start interpreting the facts in a politically, let's just say, very cautious way. And so you can have the same fact set. Now, look at the, look at the press release yesterday from Amnesty International on Syria. Exactly the same fact set as in Gaza. Exactly the same, word for word. But how did they interpret it? And that's where the problem sets in, the legal interpretation. In general, just give you a typical example. Uh, 2008, Operation Cast Lead. Human Rights Watch produces a report. It's called Precisely Wrong. And it documents Israel's use of the drone missiles uh, to target civilians. So it gives the following example. It says, in so-and-so date, two children are playing on a roof in Gaza. Okay? The drone missile, and they're very clear about the drone missile's technological capacity. The drone missile from a very high altitude, it can tell the pattern on your blouse. It can tell you the color scheme of your blouse. The person sitting on the, sitting on the ground, uh, my, uh, controlling the drone, uh, he or she can see everything from a very far distance. And then, when he or she releases the missile, the missile itself has its own uh, camera system, high-resolution cameras. And the person on the ground has the capacity to divert the rocket to the last minute, the missile to the last minute. So you have the drone, then the missile is released, down to the last minute. They can do that. And you know, right, watch it describes. They go right for the two kids playing on the roof. What do they conclude? They conclude this is a violation of international law. No. You know what a violation of international law is? A violation of international law is if two kids are playing in the street, 
a driver purposely targets them, runs them down, and kills them, right? And then he or she goes to court and gets uh, convicted for violating the speed limit. <laughs> That's not what happened. It wasn't the violation. It was the clear, unequivocal, uncontestable, um, uncontroversial targeting of kids. They precisely described what happened. The facts were right there. But they can't draw the conclusion. They just can't. Because Israel, it's kind of a given. Israel does not target children. That can't be. You start from that premise and then you work your way through the facts. It just can't be. I'm not trying to be malicious or vicious or because I have some uh, egregious animus. I'm just looking at what they present. Is it plausible to argue after you yourself describe the drone missiles to then say it's a violation of international law? It's, it's um, well... It's shameful, you know. Professor Philkestein, do you, do, what precisely is the difference between amnesty approach towards Syria and, uh, and uh, towards Palestine? Uh, why is that, that when you say that uh, Israel does not target children, is it really, is it because <laughs> your criticism towards amnesty internationally is of course very, very fierce, uh, but why is it that Amnesty International did not conclude uh, that uh, Israel is deliberately I, targeting civilians? I think they're afraid. You know, there's no strong Bashar lobby in the UK or in the United States. And um, I have to be fair to Amnesty. Now, first of all, I'm sure you read at least the first parts of the book. I don't know how far you got because it's not an easy book. I know that. Uh, and you have other things to do. Uh, the first quarter of the book, I depend large part on amnesty. You know, I uh, thought their report, Operation Cast Lead, that the 22 days of death and destruction was excellent. It was really painful to see what happened. And I think in the case of amnesty, it was two reasons. Reason number one, everybody got scared after what happened to Goldstone. It was like, uh, they may find dirt on us. So I think the first thing was, everybody feared that if they found dirt on Goldstone, or maybe his relative, they may find dirt on us. And the, same, the second thing with um, Amnesty, historically, Amnesty and Human Rights Watch always watched each other's backs. They produced, at every critical juncture, they produced reports which basically backed each other. Uh, and you could see there, I don't know how much it's orchestrated, but certainly something is going on where they recognize that each needs the other to protect. And, you know, it's serious business uh, because it's pretty ruthless. 
Uh, and this time, Human Rights Watch was missing in action. After Operation Protective Edge, it wasn't there. It wrote next to nothing. And so Amnesty was out on the limb on its own. And I think it got afraid. And I, I'll accept that also. I'll accept that also. I, uh, what, I, what I won't accept is, you shouldn't lie. Then just don't say anything. You know, I'm not going to deny on a personal level, a professional level, these are tough decisions to make. I, I recognize that. Moving on from this civil organization, we need to go back, regrettably, um, to the lawyers mm-hmm. and to the legal apparatus. So, in 2014, the ICJ has managed to issue the um, advisory opinion on Palestine. 2004. 2004, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, regarding the election of wall of um, in, in the uh, Jerusalem and also the West Bank, um, and you appear to take this as a small victory towards the Palestinians. Especially I think it was a huge victory. Yeah, but now you also um, recounted the uh, Namibia case, also before mm-hmm. the ICJ, which you think is highly comparable mm-hmm. with the, what happened in Gaza now. But here in your book, uh, Gaza, the whole occupied territory, the whole occupation, yeah. right. Uh, but then, in this book, you also propose um, an interesting idea of, you know, basically mass nonviolence movement by mm-hmm. the people themselves, this Gandhi-style um, mm-hmm. resistance movement. Um, are you suggesting that we have probably need to move on from the courts? No. Um, I should be clear about that in case there's any misunderstanding. Uh, in the current uh, in the e- epoch in which we live, the the uh, horizon, the moral horizon of people, public opinion, is international law. Now, that's not always been the case. Uh, in fact, international law is a relatively new contrivance uh, in public discussion and debate. When I was your age, growing up during the war in Vietnam, there was almost no talk about human rights, that term, or international law. Um, If you're a person of the left, we spoke of wars of national liberation, rights of peoples to self-determination, but they weren't really anchored in international law. It was more anchored in um, Marxist, Leninist uh, language. That's all been rendered obsolete. It's past, and now the language is the language of international law. So, um, the international law carries with it a huge amount of legitimacy in the court of public opinion. If you uh, if you refer uh, that the every fifth, all fifteen judges in the International Court of Justice said the settlements are illegal. That carries a lot of weight. It's like all 15, it's very difficult at that point to say the question of the legality of settlements is controversial. Uh, It carries with it a lot of political clout. However, it's an opinion. It's uh, not enforceable. It's an international court law opinion. And then you need a mass movement in order to 
enforce and impose the opinion. What does that mean? You need, let's say, a, a million Palestinians marching on the wall, attempting to break it down. And what is their legitimacy? On what grounds are they attempting to break it down? Well, they say the International Court of Justice says the wall is illegal. The International Court of Justice says the wall has to be demolished. The International Court of Justice says it's the responsibility of states to see that the wall is brought down. And so you need both. You need that uh, opinion of the International Court of Justice, because it carries so much moral weight in the court of public opinion. But in the absence of a mass movement, it's not going to be enforced. It's the mass movement that exploits, in a good sense, capitalizes on that legal opinion in order to uh, isolate Israel in the court of public opinion. So you need both. That's why I, I, I mentioned the law. I think law in the current climate, the current intellectual, uh, the current moral climate, law carries an enormous amount of weight. And it's a very powerful weapon if you know how to use it. The Palestinian leadership doesn't know how to use it. They did nothing with the 2004 ICJ opinion. They just took it, put it in the drawer, and filed it away. They did nothing with it, but it's very powerful. I know. How do I know? Because I, um, part of my life has been speaking before large audiences and trying to convince, trying to persuade. And I test what approach works. One approach which never works is morally it's wrong because everybody has their own morality. You know, you say morally it's wrong, she says morally it's right. So that approach is a dead end, you know. You have to find what is the framework that can persuade, cajole, isolate, in the case of your adversary, isolate. Uh, and the framework is, I know it from experience, you know. It became obvious to me that the most powerful weapon was to draw on international law. Uh, but on its own, does nothing. It's not enforceable. So uh, taking forward from this particular question, we have this force of what you propose as a non-violent mass movement coupled with a strong moral legitimate backing by international law. Yes. But we are faced by a then a more political and diplomatic force of the current, you know, realpolitik or the international organizations, the way they are structured, the way they function. Mm -hmm. And you have forces like Israel and backed by a big five power like the US. So uh, do you see any political or diplomatic solution at this juncture? And can you isolate or sort of distinguish between the two? Um, look, I'm not a religious person. But I still I ad adhere to the adage, God helps those to help who help themselves. Right now, Palestinians are despairing, distraught, uh, depressed, don't believe in politics, given up on it. They um, mostly it's every man for himself and every woman for herself. 
there's no belief in collective action after so many disappointments, so much corruption from their own leadership. Um, so, uh, right in the absence of their own mobilization, organization, their own moral where moral wherewithal, nothing can happen. So you have to be pessimistic at that level. On the other hand, it's also true to say they have powerful weapons on their side. Um, kind of old-fashioned, I think they have a very powerful weapon in truth. And the truth is on their side. And justice is on their side. Uh, if they were to, and justice here basically means the law. Truth basically means the facts. You know, if you if you mobilize these weapons of truth and justice, uh, I think it would galvanize public opinion in the West, which is still dormant. But it's dormant now. But there's a large constituency that's ready to go to bat for the Palestinians and just finally put an end to this uh, sheer lunacy. I was in Norway last week. I spoke in Oslo, and it was an audience of 600, and they had to turn away many people. There is that. There is an audience out there. Uh, there is a constituency out there that's ready to do something. But at this point, it's, uh, the subjective factors are not there. There's no leadership, and the people have given up.